Welcome, everybody. This is Over the Rainbow. It's our third podcast. Um, and we have a pretty diverse group of, of people who pass on. I'm Mark Silverman. My co-host is Sharon Yankowitz. And, and in today's show, we're going to be talking about Ronnie Spector. Uh, Robert Durst, who just passed away, the millionaire who was convicted of murder um, and then died very soon after. Somebody who certainly isn't famous, but falls in the category that should have been a man named John B. Charles. Uh, he played a major role with NASA, and that, that fascinates me. Me too. And, and then two radio personalities. Um both of whom I have a connection with. Yeah, they're both local California talk yeah. show hosts, correct? Yeah, Len Tillum and a man named Michael Jackson, who was a longtime host in, in, in L.A. I should mention, as we were preparing to, to start this program today to record this, uh, the news broke of both Meatloaf dying very suddenly, as well as Louis Anderson, the comedian. Uh, those will definitely be uh, primary features of next week's podcast. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I absolutely hope you, uh, you guys tune in to next week's tribute to Meatloaf and Louis Anderson. And as I was saying, tell and everybody else can can breathe easier and not die for another couple of weeks because <laughs> essentially next week's show is full. We don't we don't need anybody else to, to die over the next few days. Wouldn't you agree? I would. You know, we don't. It's not like we're looking for, you know, uh, 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 who's going to be our next material. <laughs> well, you know, we could start predicting writing in advance. I, I don't think I want to go there more. <laughs> but, you know, actually, every newspaper and every radio station has a file of pre-existing. Oh, I know. They have drawer. Yeah. Well, they used to be drawer folds, but now with the technology it's not really draw yeah. space anymore so that you know they really for most people they're all just ready to go as soon as it happens with at least the base yeah thing. i know it's but anyway anyway yeah and uh my engineering is getting a little bit better yeah so uh you know i i just i just need to say uh you know it's interesting uh you know as you know before uh we we logged on I had to go to the supermarket, do a little grocery shopping. And while I was, you know how when you stand at the uh, the uh, cashier line, right? They have mm-hmm. all the magazines out. So I'm standing there. I'm waiting my turn. And the lane to the right of me, there's People Magazine. Betty White is on there. And then you look to the left of me. Bob Saget is there. Same magazine. I was like, oh, my gosh. So, uh, yeah, they put out two two different covers. Yeah, I was like, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Those are. <laughs> so I, I I'm wondering to... if they don't like, you know, next week's issue, they might do that with Louis Anderson and Meatloaf. I don't want to get ahead of ahead of ourselves, but I don't know that Louis Anderson is quite the footprint that Meatloaf uh-huh. has. But. No, I thought he kind of stepped into that role that John Bellucci used to hold. Yeah, perhaps. But again, that that that's next week's show. Uh, 
we, we we start this week with with the death of a of a music legend, Ronnie Spector of of the Ronettes. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? What were your first impressions? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, they're 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 pop icons, right? That's really the the age of uh, the '60s, uh, the age of Motown, and um, what is it, doo up? And uh-huh. uh, you know, did you know? I didn't know that she was born Veronica Yvette Greenfield. No, and, no, um, Greenfield Bennett. She was Bennett. Greenfield was she Bennett? Yes, Greenfield was her married name after she married and divorced Phil Spector. I stand corrected. Well, referred to as one of the original bad girls of rock and roll, she was a lead. She was a lead singer along with uh, her sister Estelle. Oh, it was Estelle Bennett and right. their cousin Nedra Talley, and they stayed sung together since they were teenagers. And they were then known as the Darling Sisters. Uh, at some point, they moved to Phil Spector's Philly Records in March of 1963. We were three years old, Mark, and uh, and changed their names four. to the well, Renettes. Yeah, we were three. <laughs> I, I turned four in July that year, so a few months before okay. I, turned four, right, I was three. Uh, so, uh, well, so yeah, all that was. That, that, that comes from a very interesting time in music. The, the 50s, late that 50s, was, early 60s. That was all the, the, the very beginnings of rock and roll. And you had, and, and Motown. So you, yeah. you had very Gordy developing a stable of artists and providing yes. all the support they needed. Uh, you had... I wouldn't even say there was a Phil Spector was the equivalent, but I would almost call from I'm oddly enough. I've been reading a book called anatomy of a song by uh, Mark Myers. who's a wall street journal uh, author. And I've just started it, but the first few songs very much focus on that era that he covers some key songs over, over a 40. It really is an iconic. It really is. I mean, even music today traces back to that era. But but what I'm saying is is in in the East Coast, while Gordy was developing Motown, you had the Brill the Brill Building in New York City, and the Brill right. Building was just all musicians and producers, and a lot of independent record labels, small record labels. It was very much a, a, a wild frontier, almost. Almost anybody, almost like today, where people can do their own podcasts or or, or press their own music and promote it on YouTube, it right. was almost in some ways that easy to get a record produced, even if it was on a small independent label. Um, and at the Brill Building, what you had is this collection of studio musicians and producers. So, so if talent showed up. And wanted to, and, and and a producer liked them, they were able to basically comb the building, and studio musicians that the, the singers may have never met before would basically hear the rhythm, hear the song, and, and then just pick it up and just pick it up. up. 
yeah, doo-wop is pretty easy to just kind of chime in, right? Uh, I I don't know how, you know, the, the, the dynamics of that. It always amazes me when I can see a musician sit down and just start playing along with somebody yeah. they've never worked with and, and have it sound seamless. Uh, the timing and everything. Uh, right. But, but each of the musicians also kind of ad-libbed and would add touches to, to these songs. Mm-hmm. Phil Spector, and, and you can't talk about Ronnie Spector, who was Ronnie Bennett at the time. She ultimately married him, which turned out to be a disaster for her. Um, her life would be completely different if she had been born 30 years later. But he was, for all his later issues, he was a musical genius and a musical producing yeah, genius. Yeah, he was, he was abusive to her, wasn't he? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Very controlling. Uh, he refused to let her tour with the Beatles for crying out loud. Well, they, they were- actually did. They actually did. Uh, according to my notes, they opened for the Rolling Stones and the Beatles on their 1960 tour, 1966 tour. And, they were supposed uh, and to have were- toured toured with the Beatles much earlier. Earlier. He, he, he earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. But he created his trademark. One of his trademarks was the wall of sound, where it was just this huge collection of instruments and you know, strings and keyboards and bass and, you know, brass and you name it to just create powerful backing rather than, you know, typical three or four musicians. It sounds like it sounds like the beginnings of like what we would know as as an orchestra pit. Yes, yeah, very much. And, and he was also brilliant in marketing, not 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 the Renette song. Um, I'm trying to remember who the artist was. Another one of well, the, well, he, well, I'm just one of the early female groups had a song. I remember the song was going to the chapel. I don't remember who the artist was going to the chapel and we're going to get me. anyway. Um, that was the. Um... Well, while you while you think of that, the song yeah. came out at three minutes forty five seconds, which was longer than most radio stations wanted. Most radio stations wanted their songs to be right at that three minute mark. That's what they that's what you aim for. And this came out at three minutes forty five seconds. What did Phil Spector do? He stamped the forty five with three minutes and five seconds as the time. 
45. Wow. No, no. He just stamped it with three minutes, five, even though it ran yeah. 345. No, just the fact that you set a 45 record. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Gen, X, Gen X would not would go like, what is that? It's the, the Dixie Cups that you're thinking about. That's right. The Dixie Cups. Um, but he was, he, was a, he, was a, he was quite brilliant, quite innovative. Um, but he was he was abusive. To her, he was very, unfortunately, he was, he was very um, controlling in the contracts he gave the musicians, where he owned a lot of the rights and, and a lot of the stories of the music industry. He was a smart businessman. And, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with these musicians who are just looking to, you know, have their big moment. You know, they're like, wow, well, we're going to get a contract and, you know, just take advantage. Now, but Gordy, Gordy did not do that at all. I was amazed. Gordy cultivated. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised because I talked to some of those artists, like from, I, I think from the coasters, one of the iterations of the coasters, I believe it was. And I asked about the early days of, of, of Motown and whatnot. Did they mm -hmm. feel exploited? And they Nobody had anything negative to say. Not a thing. Not a thing. Wasn't there a nickname for was it like the Music Factory or something was, like that? There was yeah. There was some kind of nickname for for the building, the Motown building. There was a kind of like you know hit hits USA or something like that. I'm not sure, uh, uh, but but. Spectre was very controlling of Ronnie Spectre after they got married. Um, she more or less all but retired from the business in part because he wanted her to, in part because he sort of made it difficult for her to perform, even if she wanted to. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in the divorce settlement, she had to sign away millions of dollars of rights that the Ronnie Spector and the Renettes eventually sued Phil Spector for something like $10 million and 10 years of fighting. They ulti she ultimately settled for like a million dollars. Um, but she could easily make a case today that would have gotten bought, that would have thrown out all those agreements because she was definitely very threatened. And Spector died in jail because he he killed a woman. So the fact that she felt threatened was very legitimate because he was a dangerous, yeah. threatening person. Um, he spent the last 18 years, I think, of his life in jail. As a matter of fact, he just died almost exactly a year ago. Phil Spector. Which I thought was an interesting coincidence. Um. She did go on to work fairly regularly with some very high profile artists, but never I don't think she ever had a hit of her own, but she was part of contributing to many. Right. Things. Well, some of the songs that maybe noted was Be My Baby, Baby, I Love You, Walking in the Rain. And probably their best hit was a Christmas song called Sleigh Ride, which hit number 10 in the Billboard Hot 100 chart. 
Um, let's see. And, all, and then and then they were they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. She definitely represents a very important time period in the history of rock and roll and not just women performers, rock and roll in general. As a matter of fact, she was a, a, a break. The Renettes were a break from, from the sound and form of, of the typical girl group and even the harmonies of, of some of the guy groups that were becoming established in those early days in the late 50s, mm-hmm. early 60s. Um, and, and their music lives on. It's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that will never die. That's something we won't have to ever worry about dying. Good point. Good point. The next uh, noteworthy death is the multimillionaire Robert Durst. He's been uh, he's been in the news quite a bit the last couple of years. Yeah, um, he it's interesting, you know, he he's a real estate tycoon heir and was infamous for being convicted of the murdering his best friend. And um, he is the real estate magnate. He's the son of real estate magnate Seymour Durst. Uh, almost, you know, I mean, it's kind of almost Trump like because Trump, you know, had had inherited his fortune from his father who had started uh, Trump Village, which we're well aware of, you know, having grown up in Brooklyn. And um, he, he was he grew up in Scarsdale, New York. So it's a little further upstate. And uh, at age seven, he witnessed his mother's death in a fall. And uh, his mother, uh, his mother's death in a fall from their home. Uh, that that could be the beginning of of what twisted his brain. Um, but he he was a very intelligent man. Graduated with an economics degree in 1965 from Lehigh University, and became a developer in the family business. And um, Again, he was, there must have been something about him because um, when he was ready to take over the reins from his father, his father kind of skipped over him and went to his younger brother and let the brother take over the family business. Well, you, you, uh, and- obviously, the, the, the conviction of, uh, for killing his best friend, he killed his friend because his friend was threatening to reveal or expose the fact that he had in fact killed his wife several years earlier. And that's why right. he killed his friend. And there's a third disappearance that he's yes. widely believed to have killed a third person. Yes. Yet, yet he was free for many, many years, even though it was either known or suspected that he had been responsible, but he was also on the run for much of that time. He spent a lot of time in public and, in women's clothing was- and in cheap motels and whatnot. Yeah. In a, in a weird way for a guy with his wealth and resources, the life he was living was almost his own personal prison tra- while trying to I, avoid I was, prison. Yeah. I wanted to say something sort of similar. And, and, and 
Now he's sentenced. He's sentenced to prison. He was already sick with COVID, I believe, before his sentence. He actually was- had. He actually had recovered from COVID. Um, so they say. Um, let me look at my notes. He had. I had. He had. Uh, let's see. Uh, Robert Durst met Kathy McCormick. The two married on his thirtieth birthday in nineteen seventy three. Uh, let's see. He was convicted in shooting Susan Berman at point blank range at, at her L.A. home in September 2000. He was sentenced on October 14th of life in prison without parole and also um, and also was suspected of killing his wife, who disappeared without a trace in New York in 1982. When they were looking into that, they found out that Susan Berman was his accomplice in killing his wife. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, It took 40 years to prove Durst killed his wife. But, you know, at least his family has some closure now, which is the good part of that. He's also suspected of shooting a man in Texas in 2001, but he was acquitted in 2003 after claiming he was fighting, he was fighting with the, with the gun, and it went off in a struggle, and um, the the jury members did not want to clear him, but they sort of had to. Um, that he then wanted to, he had this tarnished image, and he wanted to, kind of do some damage control, so. He reached out to some movie producers and uh, in two, in 2010, they made a movie uh, about his life called All Good Things, uh, which I did not know about this. And it's starring Ryan Gosling. So yeah. that's a pretty noteworthy name there. And uh, there was also a six part HBO documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Death of Robert Durst. And um, the show made his name known to a new generation and brought renewed scrutiny and suspicion from authorities. And uh, so <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Right. Which actually and, goes uh, back to to what you were saying about Trump, all the all the additional light and animosity he's brought upon himself is causing an awful lot of the things that he'd been doing that people were looking the other way to now become front and center. You know, the real estate evaluations that people more or less knew had been doing for decades. Just nobody made a big deal of it. Now they yeah. are. Well, so from what I, from what I had read, just was, um, was hiding out in New Orleans under an alias. And uh, they caught, they caught up with him. And uh, in his possession, they found him with a gun and more than $40,000 cash and a head to shoulders latex mask, which was presumed that he was going to use for a getaway. And um, and then sort of like what you were just saying about Trump, he sort of trips over his he, he sticks his foot in his mouth and he, he doesn't know what he's saying, like like. When he was, he wasn't really advising people to drink Clorox. He was sort of just thinking out loud. But when you're the president and you're on television, you don't think out loud. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So, uh, 
So it says, uh, under devastating cross-examination by Prosecutor Lewin, Durst admitted he lied under oath in the past and do it again just to dodge trouble. So they, uh, <laughs> he, he admitted under oath that, well, I would lie if, you know, if I, I he's not saying, well, I, I did it, but if I did do it, I would lie about it. So I, I, I wonder about this. Um, I'm assuming that his lawyers had and probably still could if they hadn't filed an appeal of his conviction. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember when the Enron executives went to prison. Yeah. One of them died soon after before the appeal was heard. But because they were in the process of appealing. And he died, so the appeal was never completed. His conviction was vacated after he died. Oh, you know, and it's it's a symbolic thing. It's a semantic yeah. thing. But yeah, could in fact, if Durst was in the process of appealing or if they file an appeal now, since the appeal can't go forward and he doesn't have the ability to clear his name. Right. Would that conviction be vacated and would it matter if it were? Kind of, because it's how it's how people remember you. And I mean, it's all about, you know, that expression, clearing your name. You know, Do you um, think people would he, say, oh, well, now he didn't kill these people because he's no longer convicted, even though he had been. And it was there would be doubt. There would be there would be doubt. There would be doubt. It wouldn't be a certainty. Well, yeah, they say he did it, but they couldn't convict him. So maybe, you know, that sort of thing. Um, he had bladder cancer. And um, when he was arrested, he spent a lot of time in the uh, the infirmary. He had, uh, let me see, he, uh, he had, he had uh, bladder cancer and his health deteriorated during that whole trial that he was on trial for killing Berman. And he was hospitalized two days later. This is what you were talking about with COVID-19 and actually was on a ventilator. And then he uh, recovered and was transferred to a state prison where mugshot showed no sign of a ventilator. Mm, okay. But, but ultimately he did die of COVID, didn't he? No, it sounds to me like he's he died of can bladder cancer. Oh, okay. For some reason I had thought it was was COVID in the report that I well, had. I mean, you know, that the cancer is probably what weakens him enough to attract the the virus. Hustle. But uh but he did he did recover. Maybe he died with COVID, it. not of COVID. Correct. Okay. Well, yeah. That that's entirely possible. Yeah. Okay. I just uh, I just thought that was given the amount of press he's gotten over the last couple of years. I just thought it was interesting that his chapter ended like this. Yeah. So, so abruptly. Our next, wait, our wait. next profile is a man named John B. Charles. Had you ever heard of John B. Charles before? This? I can't say I, I had, um, but when, it, when I came across his name and the title was, you know, NASA retiring chief, blah, blah, blah. I was like, ooh, you know, so he when I read about that, I, I really wanted to bring him to your attention because he was at the very beginning of. Of that whole space error. He, well, uh, actually, no, he, he wasn't. He 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 
He was there for 35 years. He retired in 1918. So 1913, he joined in 1980, early 1980s. Uh, yeah, but that was, well, that was a whole other chapter, he, right? He, he, he was a key member of the whole space shuttle program. Yes. Uh, but, um, what, but, but in another way, you're right. Uh, he's a few years older than us. He was born in 1955. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up, I remember reading books about, you know, the kids' books, but the dad pointing to the moon and saying to his son, someday we are actually going to be able to travel. To right. The moon. And 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 in the picture, you know, there was a face on the moon, right? <laughs> Probably. That's likely true. Um, but, you know, we were of an age that. The idea of sending men into space was a a dream. Uh, 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 there's no way we can do this, and you know it was no. I, yes, yes, and no because um, that was with the Kennedy. That was the Kennedy era, and you know he was somebody that really had his convictions and and really made it. You know. He said the goal in his inaugural address that it was going yep. to be before the end of the decade. So mm-hmm. which which became July 20th, 1969, that they landed. Um, and, and, and I guess it was 1960 that he made that vow. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, we hadn't even launched Alan Shepard yet, much less uh, John no, Glenn did. having orbited. Right. We did the chimp, right? Yeah. Uh, so to go from zero to success in less than 10 years was remarkable. And it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And where we were like three and four and five, as that was all starting to develop, he was already 10, 11, 12. So mm-hmm. he was really into the space program the whole time he was growing up. And when he ultimately got his degrees in engineering, he went to work for NASA as a physicist, uh, uh, working with, with, uh, it's remarkable to me how narrow his specialty was. He, he was working on astronauts returning back, reentering earth's orbit, earth's atmosphere would Mm -hmm. grow faint, would have issues because the blood was apparently being pulled to the lower parts of their body. And he was developing techniques that would recirculate the blood properly. Yeah. Um, he, he, um, he became involved with a, with a, he, his career, ex- he spent his career examining issues of what is called orthostatic intolerance, which is a feeling of uh, fateness that the astronauts get upon the reentering um the atmosphere uh, so um he, he and his team invented a post-flight test uh called orthostatic function which is inventing a way to lower what's called lbnp lower body negative pressure and what it does is it restores body fluid balance throughout the body by drinking water with salt tablets it, it's just remarkable the degree of specialization and you realize that throughout the program, there were other 
equally skilled scientists working on equally narrow aspects of the program to to make sure that the astronauts were getting in and out of space as efficiently and effectively and safely as possible. Um, one of the highlights of his career, especially given the fact that he was such a childhood fan, was he was a key part of the mission where John Glenn, who's already a senator by now, yeah, like 25 years after his initial flight. Yeah, he was um, very proud of that. He, um, he, I think he was quoted as saying something to the effect of that he was thrilled that, um, what did I read? He, something to the effect of that he was inspired. He went from being inspired by John Glenn to coming around full circle and being able to work with John Glenn. I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but... Um... I grew up listening to AM radio in New York and, and there was a man on KC, WCBS in New York, Gil Gross, just did a morning show. It wasn't even a show. He was just a morning anchor. So he, you know, tossed the stories and did interviews and whatnot. Something about him I was just fascinated with. I just loved listening to him. Um, and it got me hooked on AM radio and talk radio. And Years later, I actually was his producer for for quite a while. So, you know, I can relate to what it must have been like for Charles to actually be able to work with John Glenn in the capacity of an astronaut. Yeah, you definitely get that feeling. Um... To be that kid looking out the window saying maybe someday we'll get to the moon. And then be a key part of it, probably the low point of his career, though they didn't, I didn't really read much on it, but he was also a key member of the team on the, I think, the second shuttle that got lost. Um, right. Which, which had, to, you know, when you work with, with that project and you work closely with the astronauts to not bring them back safely, regardless of what you That's had That's devastating, with, yeah. I remember um, reading but, uh, um, reading a, a, a profile, a, 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 a book about the search for the very the, the wreckage of, uh-huh. I believe it was Challenger, um, and the emotion that went into it because it was basically conducted by teams from NASA who were involved mm-hmm. in the building of and managing the program, who then were literally leading teams of volunteers and, 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 you know, national guard and even local citizens combing fields, looking for bits, pieces, identifying them, making sure they weren't radioactive and whatnot, and then reclaiming them. Uh, it's just the commitment to every aspect of the program. Yeah. Do you remember there was um, one program where the the USA sent up astronauts to meet Russia's cosmonauts in space. Yeah, on, on Soyuz. He yeah. was a part of that. He was he was chief he was chief scientist at NASA's Johnson Space Center, um, and he was focused on a one year mission where Russian cosmonaut Mikhail 
Komeniko and astronaut Scott Kelly spent an entire year aboard the International Space Station to enhance research on medical, psychological, and biomedical science for long-term missions. Well, that, 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 that's, that's impressive stuff. It is. And, and just the fact that that happened is tremendous because, you know, the space program wasn't just a race between us and Russia to land men on the moon first for the sake of doing it uh, to both countries and their defenses. They both considered the control of space key to their national defense because they felt if they didn't control space, the other would and you'd be vulnerable to all sorts of space lasers and whatnot. So given the fact that the space race wasn't just about ego, the fact that they, the, you know, Russia and the United States worked together on this project. And I believe still do to this day in certain areas, even with the friction that goes on is kind of remarkable. It's kind of remarkable. Mm. Um, And even, you know, even just the mention of, you know, that part, you know, that, that post-flight test where you're, you're measuring the body, the negative pressure, how he figured out to balance uh, negative fluids with, uh, with drinking water and salt tablets. I mean, I know that there's, you know, that, that hits some kind of medical treatments too. I mean, I know there are treatments that have to do with taking salt tablets. Well, many, many aspects of the space program have ultimately contributed to, uh, to benefits that, that the rest of us enjoy. Um, you know, whether it's materials or technology uh, that we've all benefited from over the years, you know, it's not just wasted money. Uh, right. It's kind of interesting that, that space exploration is taking on some new uh, momentum and, the idea of first returning to the moon and then ultimately going to Mars and, and whatnot is going to be interesting. If you, if you had the opportunity to go into space, would you go Mark? I don't go on roller coasters. There you go. Yeah. Neither. It's like, okay, see ya. Yeah. (laughs) Good time. (laughs) But you know, I mean, I was nervous the first time I flew in a plane. I think we're going to be reaching a point sometime in the next 10 years where it becomes that routine. Now, do you think we're going to get to the point where somebody can say beam you over there? I don't know about beam, but yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you're already seeing Musk and uh, Bezos and uh, Branson you know, launching citizens into space, even, I don't even think they've done an orbit yet. You know, it's all. No, I think it's been what, 10 minutes up in the air and back down you come. But, you know, that's almost becoming ho-hum. Well, it's interesting that they all sort of did it in succession. Like they all kind of. Well, they're competing for contracts as well. I mean, so many, so many satellites are being launched and being launched by private companies. Uh, you know, these are the companies that are 
launching the communication satellite and weather satellites and, and everything else. So you want that piece of business uh, and making it cost effective, uh, reusable craft, reusable engines and all of that brings down the expense of, of, of launches and therefore the expense of getting this payload into the, into the orbit. Um, and if they can add to the revenue by having passengers and ultimately have it be some sort of excursion, which could happen within the next 10, 15 years, you know, yeah. I think they said, and I don't even know if that's a cost in relation to what, it, you know, what it actually costs, it's just what the market will bear. You know, people are paying millions of dollars to be a passenger, one of eight passengers or whatever on some of these flights. That's, um, yeah, that's okay. I, I, I don't need to do Well, that. yeah, but I mean, if you have billions, millions is nothing. You know, if I had billions and millions of dollars, I'd be like, bye, have a good time. Make sure you <laughs> but, come back. <laughs> but I could actually see, I would expect that in, within the next 15 years, $5,000 would put somebody in space. It's crazy to even think about that, you know. Yeah, and you know, and, I mean, five thousand dollars yeah. isn't nothing, right? But it's, hey, you know, if that's your lifelong dream, you know, that's something would get somebody as their fiftieth birthday gift. If you know, it's not out of reach for most people. If that's right. really what they wanted, you know, if if you're going to spend a thousand dollars for a TV set, you know. Five thousand right. dollars to go into space isn't ridiculous, you know. Because right. then two grand on a cruise, no, grand no. On a cruise would be a week. I don't do that either. <laughs> no, but but people I do, that and do that. I'm not going anywhere on a boat. <laughs> well, not right this moment. No, it would not be wise. Um, I think I think space travel will become within the reach of of just about everybody. With with you know interesting. Which is which um, is you, which is amazing. Did you know that um, after he retired, he became a, an honored recipient of multiple awards in writing um, scientific uh, scientific articles. He wrote. He published. Uh, he published. Let's see. He uh, he spent his final years as a fellow of the. Aerospace Medical Association and was also a full member of the International Academy of Astronautics and published 60 scientific articles and then was honored multiple awards in this profession. So uh, lots of accolades for him and uh, very worthy, very worthy. John B. Uh, Charles, 35 years with NASA. Maybe he should have been famous. Maybe there's a lot of John B. Charles's. I bet you there are, there are. I bet you there are. You know, it makes me want to uh, maybe pay a little more attention. I mean, you, you know, you talk about um, paying attention to the science, which all has to do with COVID right now. But that's a that's a different leg of the of the scientific world. But well, um, nobody knew who it, Fauci was really until two years that's ago. That's true. That's very true. And he's now what? This is his third. The third time he's been he's been around since AIDS. Yeah. Right. Big part of the so AIDS who was president. 
Yeah, who was president when all that started? Reagan. Wow. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, that was eighty, right? Yep. Rock Hudson died. It took Rock right. Hudson dying of AIDS before Reagan even used mentioned the word AIDS and HIV. Um, and Fauci, but but Fauci, I don't think was the face of of the response the way he is with COVID. Uh, right, Mervyn Silverman was was the most famous doctor for for twenty odd years in the in AIDS research. Uh, I Fauci maybe was, you know, you probably find quotes from him, but nothing that really. Oh, I remember him type of thing. Just yeah. some anonymous. Well, I mean, a lot of that had to do with the media, right? It has a lot yeah. to do with, you know, technology and how much technology has taken off since then, too. Well, let's move on to, to, to our next segment. This one hits me particularly hard as a, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, who is not that Michael Jackson, right. is a British uh, ex, you know, transplant who became one of the most dominant talk show hosts in Southern California for 30 plus years, uh, passed away. And a local talent here in San Francisco, a man named Len Tellum, who was a radio personality who's He's from Brooklyn, actually. And right. You were a friend of his, weren't you? Yes, worked with him. He would come on the air and he'd go, I'm a lawyer. What's your problem? What's it, you know, what do you got today? And <laughs> it's very cliche Brooklynite. I'm a lawyer. And I, I actually, he, he, some of his podcasts after radio, he did podcasts until a few years ago. And I, I'm going to grab some of that sound. Um, so for those who, who know Len, we'll get to hear him one more time. I'm Len Tillum. I'm a lawyer. I was on the radio for 23 years. I love doing it. I'm not on the radio now. I'm still a lawyer and I'm doing these. That's pretty cool, Mark. And he always got a kick. He always wanted the stories. He, you know, he didn't. It wasn't like so much technical legalese. He wanted the stories. He wanted the, the ins and outs why somebody was so ticked off, you know, um, you know, I, I, for, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. I got into a fight that went on for a month with Chipotle Mexican restaurant. They ripped me off for 34 cents donated to charity. I won't go into all the details, right? 34 cents that they charged to my credit card and donated to charity. And I was furious. Hmm. I was furious. And I fought them. I just, you know, it was, it was principal. It wasn't, you know, the 34 cents. It was principal. Right. Uh, he would love that kind of story. You know, he would love, what is it about that 34 cents that Chipotle donated to charity that had you so angry. That's the kind of thing he lived for when he had callers. Uh, well, they did it without your knowledge. Well, the, 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 the sort the, of long story short, I ordered something online. I was supposed to pick it up at eight o'clock. It was 
$11.66. And they said, would you like to round up to $12 with the 34 cents going to charity? And I said, sure. And my eight o'clock order wasn't ready at 9.30. Wow. So I canceled it. And they refunded to me the $11.66. But not the, not the donation. Not the 34 cents. I, I got you. <laughs> and, you know, they were going to get, you know, they were putting my 34 cents with your 34 cents and his 18 cents. Blah, 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 blah. They, you know, they would be giving a check to, of $50,000 to charity that they would be taking off their taxes and t- getting credit for. Right. I didn't want them. It was such a screwed up transaction. I didn't want them having that 34 cents worth of goodwill. Gotcha. It, it just pissed me off. Um, and like I said, those are the kind of stories he would spend 15 minutes. He would spend as much time, you know, and see and understand why I was so invested in getting that 34 cents back. And I did, by the way. Uh, well, good for you. <laughs> Len, Len, Len had a legal practice. He had a varied legal practice in the in the later years. He was doing mostly estate planning, living trusts and wills and things of that sort. But yeah, he, did... he um, from what I'm sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. I had uh, Lawrence from reading about him, which which sort of uh, hit a, a, a you know it, it kind of hit me uh, or or. Or, or rang a bell for me, so to speak. Um, he specialized in elder law, yes. focusing on the needs of older adults from estate planning to elder abuse. That's amazing. He, 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 it's quite specialized. Yeah, he, he had other specialties. I know that he did criminal law, but, but he did a lot of different aspects of civil law. And then he had, uh, he had a law practice um, and with one of his partners named McNichol, he wrote The Elder Advocate, which was a newspaper column offering insight on a wide range of legal topics impacting seniors. Um, so there was a lot of knowledge out there. He went, he went uh, on to, uh, to do a radio show on a local Santa Rosa Sonoma station with a, with a very small footprint. But it was so popular that he got exposure and, and KGO was one of the most powerful radio stations in the country, one of the most dominant radio stations in the country. And he got a one hour show on our station. And, and, and that's where you and that's where you met him. Yeah, that's how I knew him. Uh, and he was also a frequent guest probably four or five times a year on my show, so, which preceded his. Right. Did you, so, so you, your show followed the, the Len Tellum no, show? No, Len followed, we were nine to noon and Len was noon to one for a good time. Right. And he time. had a Sunday afternoon show. He had a weekday show. He had a Monday through Friday show for a long time. Okay. But he also right. had a, at first it was weekends and he moved, they moved them to five days a week. It was that popular. Okay. Um, so my show would toss to his show. Gotcha. Uh, and we would do a cross promo, but he was also on several times a year. He was a guest on our show, usually in studio. He did a show from his Uh-oh. offices in Sonoma, All right. but several times a year, he'd come into San Francisco, be in studio with Ron, the host of our show, Ron Owens, 
who's going to play a a part in in the next segment about Michael Jackson as well. Um, All right. And you know, we would take additional calls similar to to, to the stuff he did on his show with our audience. Mm-hmm. So I would work with David Brown, his associate, who's also an attorney who produced his show when he did it on his own, you know, in the office. And we would manage the calls together. Um, in part, Len was asking me to help teach David some of the nuance. As a matter of fact, one of the, my favorite perks of working at the radio station Uh after Len left his local show in the, the Santa Rosa station, yeah. they wanted David to take that slot over. David Brown, his associate, to do that wow. Santa Rosa show. And Len took me out to lunch with David so we could so I could share my insight, and my wisdom and coach him on on becoming a more effective host and how to take calls and how to manage calls and whatnot. And we did a couple of lunches and what was very cool is it became a regular thing. So every time Len came into the city to be guests on our show, we'd all go to lunch. And at, at, at this went on for years. And at some point, Len didn't go to lunch with us. He just gave David his credit card and David <laughs> and I would go and sushi or whatever. We, we would nice. spend $100, $150 on lunch on Len's car. That's a nice lunch, Mark. Oh, my goodness. It was wonderful. It was just such a wonderful perk. It wasn't even the money. It was the idea of not really debating, should I order an appetizer or should I get the salad? Oh, get both. You want to get two appetizers. You know, it was like... Mm-hmm. And and yeah, he didn't care. It was, you know, a small, small right. change for him. And from what I read about his show... um. It sounds like he was funny. Oh, he was very uh, funny. He, he had a very, very good funny. way. If somebody called up and then they got a little tongue tied, he was very good at like nudging his callers to share more and more details and drawing it out yeah. of what their situation was. And then being able to show compassion and kind of diffusing the whole stress factor by by using humor. Yeah, um, and, so it was a wonderful frankly, way. He didn't yeah. always go straight legalese. He he sometimes yeah. coached so he brought on his, how to hide things. That, yeah, we call that Brooklyn shtick, right? Yeah, he brought his a, Brooklyn shtick out to <laughs> the West Coast. <laughs> another favorite. I, I have a couple of stories that I have to share about Len. Uh, we did a, at KGO. One of the things we did every year was. The KGO Curathon. It was a 24-hour fundraiser for Leukemia Society, uh, where we had guests and musicians and interviews with various people suffering with doctors researching leukemia. And we did fundraisers and double your dollars and this and that. And we did auctions. I was the auctioneer for mm-hmm. almost 20 years. I was involved with the Curathon for about 25 years. It actually was my foot in the door to ultimately work for the radio station uh, was first being involved with the Curathon. And then through that, I got to meet everybody at the station and then got my, my first producer's job. Uh, and I was the auctioneer and we did, we had five or six items that went at the end of the 24 hour event. You know, those were, I mean, literally, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars items each. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we had items that were auctioned off every hour. And Len always donated a living trust. And I think you could get a good living trust. I mean, you could get cheap ones for about $900, but a reasonable, well-done living trust by a reputable lawyer is probably a couple thousand dollars. And (laughs) we had one go for, you know, went for about $3,000. And Len was so pleased with that, that he wanted to give a second living trust. And he wanted to tell people that. And I had actually had something like this happen once before. And I said, no, be quiet about the second living trust. Because if you and I are bidding to win that trust. And I say 2000, you go 2100, I go 2300, you go 2400, we go back and forth. And finally, one of us drops out at 3000. And Len says, you know what, I'm going to do two. Or there's another one I can give you. Well, we could have stopped at $2,000. Because, you know, $2,000 was just you and me, we would have had to go to 3000. So I would never let him Talk about the second trust. What gotcha. I ultimately did was after we had that $3,000 winning bid, and this went on for years, I would keep second place, third place, fourth place. Uh, hey, you know, I got to tell you, Len was really touched by the energy and enthusiasm. And he wanted me to let you know. If you would like to honor your second place bid donation to the Leukemia Society, he's willing to do a second trust. He usually took the winner out to lunch. He goes, it probably won't. I said, probably won't include lunch, but you'll get a trust with Len. And usually second place took it. If not, third place would take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we avoided that that friction of, of having the false bidding. Um, although... <laughs> Again, this went on for years, and I remember one of the last times I started calling, or I didn't even make calls, but the person who was in second place said, let me know if Len's doing a second trust again this year. I'll take the, you know, <laughs> like, like they were wise to it anyway. Uh, <laughs> the other really funny story. Now, you have to understand. The event goes 24 hours. It goes from it goes from seven o'clock at night on Friday to what's supposed to be seven o'clock at night on Saturday. Oh. Although we usually Lunar. get to closer to eight. Lunar, like the Jews. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I'm usually so, but I'm usually up from Friday morning. So right. You know, I'm up Friday morning. All night Saturday, all night Friday night, and then the auction closes. The auction pride closes at about five o'clock most years, six o'clock, and th- that last two hours is the most insane time. So you know, I'm on pure adrenaline by then. And at ten o'clock Saturday morning, so at this point I'm up twenty four to thirty thirty something hours. Trish Robbins, the executive producer, comes up. And this is the hour we're supposed to do Len's trust. She goes, we can't do the living trust. I'm on autopilot. I can do the auction because I'm an expert at it. 
but don't really ask me to do anything outside of that. You know, don't ask me to think, you know, I can do the audit, the, 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 the auction. Cause like I said, I can do that with my eyes closed, but she goes, we can't do the, the trust. I said, why not? He goes, they just took Len to the hospital. He had a heart attack and they're doing a bypass. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I turn and again, I'm punchy. I have no time for tact or decorum. So, so let me ask you this. Are you saying we can't do the trust because you think Len's not going to be here to deliver the trust? That he's not going to survive? Or are you saying we can't do the trust because he's not here to sell it, to auction it off, to describe it? She goes, oh, no, he'll, he should be fine. He's just not here. So how are we going to sell it if he's not here? I said, I said you won't worry about that. And Mike Amatori, who was our promotion, I don't, I don't know his technical term. He did all the promotions for the radio station, all the funny bits promoting. He would take the, the, the bits from different shows and cut them into funny spots. Uh-huh. One of the, one year we, we like a auctioned wheel. off the best of Mike Amatori. Bloop wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but there were, it wasn't even bloopers. It was just funny, funny bits. He was really brilliant. Um, he was the auctioneer. See, I was behind the scenes. I wasn't technically on the air. Although I was, I got on the air quite a bit. The, 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 the hosts would be auctioning off, you know, or other talent and they would be working through with me. And sometimes they would ask me questions on the air. Sometimes I'd interject. Mike and I worked together. And like I said, we'd been giving away his CDs. So I started calling him, you know, asking him about his eight tracks. You know, are we auctioning off your eight tracks again this year, Mike? And he was calling me producer boy or something. I don't remember. (laughs) We were beating each other up and talking about Len's trust and how good it was and how every year, blah, blah, blah. No, we didn't do the technicalities. People knew Len Tillman, knew the trust. They didn't need to hear the nuances and finer points of the trust. We had talking points. We had bullet points. But we just did this impromptu bits, you know, during the three auction hits. And the damnedest thing was, for years, we'd get about three grand for Len's trust. We got four thousand five hundred dollars. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, Very we good. got more for that trust than Len ever got. <laughs> so that was that's quite amazing. Now, now to move on, and and I mentioned Ron Owens would have a tie to Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson hosted a talk show in L.A. Very popular. Very the. KABC was as powerful a signal and as strong in its market as we were in ours, although we were overall a more dominant station. Was it the same time? Yeah. 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 Ron was nine to noon here in San Francisco on KGO. And that is the prime radio spot. That's right. Nine to noon is the spot. Michael Jackson had drive time in L.A. At okay, yeah, so nine to one, like- and the one, and then got cut to nine to noon. Um, mm-hmm. And then, 
over the 30 years, obviously with changes and people like, like Rush Limbaugh and Michael Savage started to really mm-hmm. emerge ultra, ultra conservative and, and network. And Ron was one of Ron here in San Francisco was one of the few hosts to consistently beat Rush Limbaugh in that time slot. Michael Jackson, unfortunately, was like most of the other hosts and his show lost ratings to Limbaugh and very almost always came in second to Rush Limbaugh. So ABC was looking to make a change. So he was the bridesmaid and never the bride. Yeah. And and Ron Owens, who is one of the most successful talk show hosts in the, in the country for many years has since re- retired a couple of years ago. He was a local host. He won. He had dreams of being syndicated like rush being or perhaps coast to coast. Um, so he got into some pretty. Uh, Rackus negotiations with management at KGO. Uh, and actually went on strike for several months uh, over over this issue and others. You know, money he wanted to be paid according to his stature. Ultimately, right. was, he was he was getting a lot of money. Um, but the first step towards syndication and perhaps something of a compromise, he ended up taking Michael Jackson's nine to noon slot in L.A. And his show is being heard both in San Francisco and L.A. He was doing the same show. One week he Mm -hmm. was sitting in the studios in San Francisco. One week Ron was sitting in the studios in L.A. And the show broadcast to both markets. Right. It did not work according to plan for a number of reasons. One, he was replacing Michael Jackson, who's very, very popular. So now. From what I understand, was he British? Jackson was, yes. Yeah, so you know, if if I'm understanding that, I know when I when I listen to an actor with a British accent, I'm like, oh. so it's very dreamy, and so he he must have had a, a very high female fan base. Uh, he, he had a tremendous fan base regardless. I, I don't know what the demographics were, but he was very popular. He was very popular in general. He was very popular with his fans. With those who he was popular with, he was very popular, if that makes sense. So Ron had trouble winning over that audience. He was getting resistance. Uh, and the thing about talk radio Local talk radio is it's local. It's people talking over the Mm -hmm. fence and it's hard to do a show talking about, I mean, talking about issues that were Bay area that had nothing to do with San Francisco, Los Angeles and get traction. Likewise to do shows, a show that had great interest in LA, you wouldn't get the traction in San Francisco. So his audience in both markets was suffering. And hmm. while we had many high profile national guests, we won the first we were the only local interview with Barack Obama. We had the one hour hit with oh. Barack Obama. We had uh, Supreme Court justices. We had royalty in our show. We had the top. Show like a right. Yeah. But 
we also did what was happening today. What was happening in our market today? What was everybody talking about? Well, people in LA weren't talking about the same things that people in San Francisco were. Right. Versa. So it was hard for Ron to do a show. That was what was everybody talking about when nobody was talking about the same thing. So that only lasted a year. Uh, he couldn't overcome that, that resistance. He couldn't overcome the fandom of Michael Jackson. Thank you for joining in, Curly. Uh, you have to join <laughs> in every week. And Ron ended up just coming back and doing, doing San Francisco. And Michael Jackson ended up doing other shows on other stations. He smaller, progressively smaller and smaller markets and smaller stations, less prominence. But he went on for quite a while. Also did a lot of voiceover work and some some degree of acting being in L.A. and being high profile. So he had a pretty diverse and varied career. It Um, does sound like he was um, quite well liked in the community and and in his his niche out there because uh, I'm reading he had a, a lengthy list of accolades, including a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and even an honor from the Queen of England. Yes, and, so, and the Radio Hall why? of Fame, not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the Radio Hall of Fame, yes. Uh, Michael Jackson is in there. He, I, I believe he won the Marconi Award at least once. Oh, I uh, read that they were in both. Yes. Uh, you know, at some point, and this will be for another show. Um, yeah. The loss of Jackson. Ultimately, he was off the air. Ron retiring and others. That is part of the death of local talk radio. Uh, being replaced by podcasts, being replaced by national syndication. Um, right. Mainstream you know, middle of the road radio is being replaced very much mostly by conservative uh, and, and lunacy, you know, Rush right. Limbaugh is out there and Alex Jones. So, is so I'm getting, he was sort of your, like your version of like what I grew up with, which was Harry Harrison. Yes, like, very much. Right. Banning room. Uh, yeah. Yes. As opposed to, I think he was, he on didn't do the, he didn't, he was not a, yeah, he was not a shock jock like uh, like Don Imus, right? No, not like Imus, not like Howard Stern. But there was another guy, Don Grant or Bob Grant, who was closer in tone to a limb. He was local, but closer in tone to a Limbaugh, uh, really, really taking positions. Very, very crass. Yeah, that was he was in New York. Jackson was was more like Harry Harrison, more like like right. you know, cousin Brucey was was music, was AM AM radio, but more right. of a of a neutral, non-offensive personality, middle of the road. Uh, but but that degree of talk radio, that local radio, for a number of reasons, is dying, and I definitely something we will talk about in another show because yeah. it's important and. Ironic that we're going to do it on a podcast. Yeah. So I think this is as good a time to wrap up. Sounds good to me. Yeah. This edition of Over the Rainbow. Uh, thank you for listening. We really look forward to your feedback. I'll remind you again that next week 
At the very least, we're going to be talking about Louis Anderson and Meatloaf, which I'll tell you now, the Meatloaf ties into so many key moments of, of my high school and college days that, that it's very much part of me dying with him. Oh, Mark. Yeah, we'll talk about that yeah. next week. Yeah, he, um, what was his real name? Do you remember? Marvin Lee a day or something like that. Yeah, Marvin Lee a day, and then he changed his name from Marvin to Michael. Right, right. Okay. Anyway, thank you for uh for for being here today, Sharon. Yeah, my pleasure, and thank you for uh for your part in one over the rainbow. This is our third podcast. Hope to hear your feedback, and we'll talk to you next week. And Take have care. a good day. 